All right. Well, we're going to turn to the preaching of the word. If I don't know you, my name is James. I'm on staff here at the church. Would love to connect with you. So grateful uh, that um, you're here with us today. I'm just going to call out some old timers who are here with us. Justin and Laurel are here, which is great. And also Ben and Heather Lorden. Welcome. Don't be offended if you're here that I don't see you. I just saw their faces and we got super excited. So, all right, we're going to continue in Hebrews. And by way of introduction, if I was to give you a piece of paper and said, I want you to write down the answer to this question, I'm, I'm curious what you would write down. If I said, write on a piece of paper, what do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe about the Bible? What are things that you would write down on your piece of paper? What are some things that you believe about the Bible? Is the Bible God's word? Is the Bible perhaps a collection of fables or stories that maybe or maybe don't point to, point to moral truths? Is it a historical document that has no moral authority? What would you write down? What do you believe about the Bible? For the first time in American history, a recent Gallup poll revealed more Americans doubt than believe that the Bible is God's word. More Americans doubt than believe that the Bible is God's word. And it's not not shocking, I would assume as such. But this got me thinking, which sometimes gets me in trouble. But this got me thinking that every day... Each one of us interacts with some form of technology or equipment that's vastly more powerful than what we realize when we just hold it in our hands. So a few years ago, two years ago, we had hardwood flooring installed in our home. And as you know, you you have a few guys come over and give you estimates to see what the best deal is, right? And so the first guy came out to our house with his tape measure and just was like meticulously measuring every nook and cranny of our house. I didn't think anything of it. He's just doing his job, right? That's what you do. It took a long time. But the next guy came into our house and literally in a minute pointed his phone at a few different walls, done. And I remember saying, you sure you got everything here? Like, we're wanting flooring like everywhere in the house, you know? And he's like, yeah, I just got to point to the different corners of your home and the phone calculates the square footage. And my jaw just dropped, like astonished. Your phone can do that? And that's probably not a good story to tell in a room full of software designers. I'm a little clueless when it comes to technology, but like the power we possess in our pockets with these phones is immense, isn't it? It's immense. It's a flashlight, a camera, a video recorder, a tape measure. I can monitor my heart rate, turn on my car, turn off my heat, pay my groceries. I even learned you can check AA batteries, the life of AA batteries. These phones, as we hold them in our hand, are so much more than what we just see in our hands. Our phones possess this vast capacity and power to do far more than what we can imagine. And in the same way, when we hold our Bible, when we hold our Bible, God's word given to humans, when we hold this in our hands, we possess something with a capacity and a power to do far more than what we can imagine. 
In fact, something far greater and far meaningful than the phones in our pockets. Turn to Hebrews 4 with me. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back we'd love to give you. But Hebrews chapter 4. And as you turn there, we're going to continue to see that in Hebrews, that this is exactly what the author of Hebrews has wanted to impress upon this suffering, persecuted church. That the God who has made the heavens and the earth has spoken. Hebrews 1.1, that God has, in a sense, stepped into our human experience, into our human suffering with good news, with a message of salvation and hope and redemption. And so the, the question before each one of us this morning is, what do you believe about God's spoken word, the Bible, this message, this good news of God's salvation? Is the Bible just an ancient piece of literature? Or is the Bible something more? Does the Bible possess a power to do far more than what we just see in our hands? Let's pray. Father God, we need you. And we ask that you open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Prune back any hedge of disbelief that we may see you most clearly in these moments together. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, our direction this morning is really just to explore how God's word relates to us today. How does God's word relate to us today? And we're going to see three things. One, we're going to see our, as a Christian, our action or our attitude towards God's word or what it should be. Third, we're, or secondly, we're going to see attributes of God's word. What is true of God's word? And third, we're going to see our need for God's word. So we're going to see our action. We're going to see the attributes of God's word and also our need for God's word. And so our action or our response to God's word. And over this last month, we've been uh, beginning really in chapter 3, verse 7, extending to where we are today in, in chapter 4, verse 13. We've been paying attention to a specific warning that was given to this ancient suffering church. Warning against hardening their hearts against God and his word, of, of ignoring or dismissing what God has spoken. And last week, we ended in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11. And the author says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, which we see as an eternal rest provided by God. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And what strikes me as I read this verse is really the tone of the author. The tone. There's there's an urgency here. There's an impassioned plea for the Christian to strive. Let us, therefore, strive to be diligent, to, to be earnest, to really, if you think about it, to, to put forth considerable effort, right? And why? Well, he says, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And whose same sort of disobedience? Well, if you've been here, you know we've been talking about this same sort of disobedience we've seen in the people of God wandering in the wilderness. That's the Israelites, right? 
In chapter 3, verse 19, the author says they, the ancient people of God, the Israelites, were unable to enter because of unbelief. In the wilderness, God spoke again and again of his promise of provision and love and victory to the Israelites. I've been reading through this account. It's not just once that God says this. He says this over and over again. Exodus 19 is is just one example. He says, you, Israelites, shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yet as we know, the Israelites fail. They fail to trust God's spoken word. And we've been through this, but when the difficulty of the wilderness became too much, the thirst and the hunger too great, the enemies too strong, they grumbled, they complained, they scoffed. And rather than marching forward in faith in response to God's spoken word, they believed it would be better to turn around, to go back, to re-enter a land of slavery. They'd rather subject themselves to a life of pain and misery than to trust God's spoken word. The disobedience that the author is speaking of in Hebrews 4, 11, I believe is talking about the disobedience of unbelief. A lack of trust in, in God and his word. The disobedience of 4.11, I believe, is this disobedience of unbelief. And the author of Hebrews is, is pleading with this church and with us, don't be like them. Rather, as the author suggests in 4.11, be diligent, be eager, be earnest, strive to enter God's rest. And this is not to suggest that our salvation Our ability to enter this rest is dependent on our works. This is not what it's suggesting. I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 2. The author says, For good news came to us just as to them, the Israelites. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So this good news, which is God's word, what God has spoken, this good news, it was spoken to the Israelites. Good news came to us just as to them. But look at what it says of why it doesn't, it didn't benefit them. Or maybe your translation says it didn't profit them. That when God spoke, that when this good news came, it didn't profit or benefit them because they were not united by faith. Two things I want you to see. Two things. One, God was speaking of a good news that he had already accomplished. God was speaking of a good news that he had already accomplished without the people of God contributing anything to it. You see that? And secondly, God's word we see must be united by faith. Meaning we can't just hear God's word. One has to trust God. God's word. Embrace God's word. Be satisfied with God's word. 
that when the wilderness of life tempts us to return back to Egypt, to our sin, we entrust ourselves again and again and again to the promise of God, to what God has said. Our striving is not to work for our salvation. Our striving is to rest in our salvation. You catch the difference? God has finished the work. We, verse 11, what the author of Hebrews is saying is we must be diligent and eager and striving to rest in that, to trust in that, in what God has spoken, what he has promised, what he has accomplished for you and I. Therefore, the author of Hebrews has been warning this church, don't ignore what God has spoken, for what God has spoken leads to life. Listen to God's word. Trust it. Embrace it. Be satisfied with it. That's 4.11 and the action or our response that's required of every Christian, every follower of Jesus as it relates to God's word. So as we continue really into the verses we're supposed to be in today, 12 and 13, these are verses we've often memorized as like standalone verses. As you look at them, they're probably familiar. They're verses that help communicate truths about God's word, which is all good. These are verses we should memorize. But what the author is actually doing is supporting how God's word leads to life. How God's word leads to life. This is a a support, a defense, a, a reason for why God's word is so critical, is necessary for the Christian to trust and embrace. And so we have these really six reasons, which are six attributes of God's word. And we'll look at each one of them in verses 12 and 13. The first attribute of God's word that we see there is that God's word is living. God's word is living. It's not dead. It's not out of date. It's not a newspaper passing along yesterday's news irrelevant for us today. It's living. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God. Remember Genesis in the garden. God breathed into humanity and Adam became alive. So we see here Paul saying, God, Scripture is breathed out by, by God. Scripture, uh, he breathes into Scripture, and Scripture becomes alive. Scripture is living because God is living. Therefore, when we open our Bibles, we're not just confronted with these black, sterile words on a page, but we're confronted by a person speaking through this page. We're confronted by a living, eternal creator, God himself speaking to us. God's word is living. Secondly, we see that God's word is active. It's not dormant. It's not static. It's not on lunch break. God's word is actually accomplishing things. It's effectively producing results. Isaiah 55 says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
Hear this. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You see, the word of God, the Bible, is like pulsating with power. It's pulsating with power, springing into action, like springing into our face, accomplishing the purposes for which God has set out for it. God's word is living. It's active. Thirdly, we see that God's word is sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword. And the two-edged sword, the gladius, was the standard weapon carried by every Roman foot soldier in the first century. And the design of this sword was not necessarily to like slash or to swing at an opponent's arm or a leg. I mean, you could, but the design of the sword was to thrust the sword into your opponent and allowing the sharp double blade to viciously penetrate and effectively incapacitate your opponent. It was a deadly sword. Its function was to inflict great harm, to kill. And here the writer of Hebrews is not saying the Bible is like a two-edged sword. The author says the Bible is sharper than any of the sharpest, of the sharpest or deadliest swords of the time. Meaning God's word is not dull. Not ineffective. It's not unable to provoke a response. By virtue of design, God's word will affect you. It will penetrate you. And here's hope. God's word will penetrate even the hardest of hearts, those far from God. God's word is living, is active, is sharp. Fourthly, we see that God's word is piercing God's word is piercing. It's, it's devastatingly thorough. Piercing through that which is material, like joints and, and marrow, but also that which is immaterial, soul and spirit. Meaning there's, there's no corner of who we are able to escape this probing, piercing power of God's word. God's word pierces to the inmost recesses of who we are. God's word is living, active, sharp, piercing. And fifth, we see that God's word is discerning. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And this word discern, or maybe your translation says judge, does not mean to condemn, but it's better seen as to assess. When somebody shows you a painting, they're not saying, what's your condemnation? They're saying, what's your assessment of the quality? What's your assessment? Is it good or is it bad? You see, God's word is like this ultimate surgeon able to cut into the deepest recesses of our body, places we're unable to get on our own, and God's word assesses what's there. Is it good, faith, or is it failing, sin, and need of repentance? God's word is living, active, sharp, piercing, discerning, And lastly, we see exposing. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word rips the clothes 
from our body and shows us what we are. There's no hiding place. The word exposed means to to bend the neck back. I thought about bringing Emery up here to show me his jiu-jitsu skills, but then I thought better of it. But it's a wrestling maneuver to bend the neck back. Like think of like a chokehold, right? Whereas the throw is being held by an opponent and, and you're in an uncomfortable spot if you're in this chokehold, right? I can't breathe, but it's also super, super vulnerable because you can't protect yourself, right? You can't get away. In fact, your body is perfectly positioned to receive a knockout blow from your opponent. You see, God's word pulls the curtain back on our lives. God's word lifts the veil off our thought. God's word forces us to confront what's actually true in our lives. God's word will not be fooled by our hypocrisy or deception. It shoots straight. It doesn't bend. So the author of Hebrews tells us a lot about God's word. The author of Hebrews says that God's word is living. It's, it's relevant today as it was for this ancient church, ancient church thousands of years ago. God's word is, is active. It's effectively producing God's will. It's sharp. It penetrates even the hardest of hearts. It's piercing. No corner of our lives are untouched. It's discerning, able to reveal faith or sin. It's exposing, showing us for what we are. But again, the author is not interested in merely passing along information that we might know attributes of God's word. The author wants the readers to experience transformation that we might see God's word as our greatest weapon to press on in our pursuit of obtaining the promise of God's eternal rest. Which leads us to our last Point, which is our need for God's word. Our need for God's word. And for us to fully buy into this notion that we need God's word, we have to be convinced of really what's at stake. And what's at stake? Over and over, we've heard as we've gone through this warning passage, what's at stake is entering God's uh, promised eternal rest, Right? So it's fair to say that eternity is at stake. And the only way any of us enters this eternal rest is by faith. It's by trusting and embracing God's word, the good news of what Jesus has done that we've seen there in in, in chapter 4, verse 2. Here's where I think we often err in our Christian life. I think we often view, or at least I do, that the greatest danger to our faith is not, um, that that our greatest danger to faith is, is, is to not commit like the bad sins, that that's my danger. Stay away from sex and drugs and rock and roll, right? Stay away from the bad things. But having gone through the life of David last year, I'm not convinced that our greatest, that this is our greatest danger because David committed what? Every terrible sin you can imagine, yet God says he was a man after God's own heart. And I don't know about you, but when I begin to build my faith on my own righteousness, on the things that I am doing or not doing to please God, it results in like a screwy faith. 
I start believing that my salvation is all the good things that I'm doing or all the bad things I'm not doing, plus a little bit of Jesus on the side. That's not biblical faith. That's me lacking belief in the already accomplished promises of God. Our greatest danger is unbelief. Our greatest danger is unbelief. Remember 319. The author says they're unable to enter because of unbelief. What we need in this life as we wander really in this this wilderness of life is protection from unbelief. I don't know if I've convinced you yet of your need. So I'm going to give you one more. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 13. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 12 through 13. The author says this, Take care, brothers, sisters, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Yes, we've established it's, it's unbelief that bars one from entering God's eternal rest. But notice what contributes to our unbelieving hearts. See this unbelieving heart? What contributes to it? At the end of the verse 13, it says, the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. Christian or not, the singular reason we sin is because we're being deceived. Consider the first humans, Adam and Eve, who in a perfectly created world, every desire of theirs met by God's good provision. Yet even in this reality, they chose to trust the empty promise of sin, the deceptive lies of the devil, devil rather than trust the already realized and good promises God had given them. And so just as it was the question for Adam and Eve in the garden, it remains the same question for us today. Will I believe the promise or promises of God, or will I believe the promise of sin? Will I believe the promise of God, or will I believe the promise of sin? You know, whenever I go, I'll be honest, whenever I go to a place with good food or good drinks, I can easily, easily allow my fleshly appetite to deceive my heart. Just one more. It's okay. This is good. It's what I deserve. I can be driving into work and noticing like the fabulous lake homes around Madison. There's a lot of them, right? And and I can allow my heart to, to, to tightly wrap its tentacles around the wealth that God has given to me and just say, this is mine. I'll give to God after I get what I want. In these moments, will I believe the promise of God? Or will I believe the empty, deceptive promise of sin? You see, my my only hope as I entertain the deceptive, empty promises of these thoughts and other thoughts, is that there's something sharp enough to penetrate the fog of my deception and pierce through the lies that I'm so easily prone to believe. The one thing that can do that, the only thing I would suggest that can do that, is God's word. 
The Bible is God's means to protect us against the deception of sin. The Bible is God's means to protect us against the deception of our sin. The way we keep our hearts from unbelief is to constantly expose our hearts to God's word again and again and again. And I get it. Placing our lives under the microscope to be exposed is uncomfortable and intimidating and hard. So so unless you're convinced of your need for God's word, you're going to find an excuse every time to, to dismiss or ignore what God has spoken. We can think of it like this. No one goes into an operating room believing that when I lay on the surgical table under these bright lights, fully exposed, having a scalpel cut open my body, this is going to be a great time, right? But if you're told that the only way in which you will live is if we cut you open and remove the tumor, you'll do it every time, willingly, eagerly. For if you don't, you'll die. By the same token, if we ultimately, ultimately choose to dismiss or ignore God's word, and possess a heart of unbelief for what God has spoken without any repentance, a sword is still a sword. Rather than it being a sword which penetrates to bring life, it becomes a sword which penetrates and brings death. God's judgment of our unbelief. It's been a number of years Now for me, but I spent nearly nine months at a residential program for men embattled in sexual sin. Some of you know this story. And prior to entering this program, I'd spent a decade of my life living this double life. Righteous church boy by like day, sexual addict by night. And my first day in this program, my first counseling session, I'll never forget. My counselor looked right at me right in the eye. And he said, are you a Christian? And I said, yeah. And he, he bluntly, doubtfully said, how can that be true? And I was dumbfounded, like taken aback. Sure, I, I made some mistakes to get me in this place in my life, but, but the other reality is I'm only two classes shy of getting my seminary degree from Bible school. Like, th- who does this guy think he is to question my faith? And in my silence, he quoted 2 Corinthians 5.17. He said, if anyone is in Christ, this is God's word, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed and the new has come. And growing up in a a Christian home, going to church for 25 plus years, I I not only knew this verse, I had it memorized. But but the, the power of God's spirit in this moment, the truth of God's word was illuminated to me and hit me as if it literally someone had thrust a sword into me and I physically stumbled backwards. 
As this penetrating, piercing power of God's word cut into the deepest recesses of my heart, exposing my pride and idolatry, that honestly, even as a Bible student, a seminary student, I'd been blinded by the deception of my sin, believing I could do all these private, immoral things, but outwardly, I could carry on as if I was this new creation in Jesus Christ, believing, in fact, that Jesus was lucky I was on his team. We could go around this room, I'm sure. So many of us could share a pointed example of when God's word pierced you or exposed you. I know that for a fact. But here's here's the wonderful truth in this piercing and exposing. God's intent in exposing my heart in that counseling room, your heart, wherever you have been, is never to shame you or I. It's never to poke fun at you or I. It's convicting, yes. It's painful, yes, to see you for what you are. But it's for our good. God gives life. God gives life, healing, redemption, restoration. That's what God's word does. The Bible is God's means to protect you and I against the deception of our sin. So that our story doesn't end as it did for the ancient Israelites. Bodies strewn across the wilderness, barred from entry to the promised land. Therefore, may we take to heart Hebrews 4.11 and live our lives diligently, eagerly, earnestly with this book, God's word guiding us. As we close, we, we could be tempted to think, man, God seems stern, angry, abusive, right? Do what I say or else. I'm just waiting for you to mess up so I can cut you open, right? We we can feel that. I want to encourage you to see God as nothing, nothing of the sort. Remember the meaning of the word to be exposed, throat held back, body perfectly positioned to receive the knockout blow from your opponent? Friends, We'll never know the pain of that knockout blow for Jesus absorbed that impact for you and I. Jesus took it, not us. And what's interesting in this warning passage is that on either side, you can fact check me, on either side of this warning passage, the author of Hebrews refers to Jesus as our priest. It's on both sides. And then we have this warning passage. And David Jordan is going to give you a heavy dose to priesthood next week. Bring your yellow page, or notebook, right? But in short, the role of the priest was to intercede for sinful people of the holy God, atoning for their sins by making animal sacrifices. And the priesthood of Jesus is comparable to these earthly priests, but different in one major way. The sacrifice Jesus made was himself the eternal lamb of God. So we can be tempted to think of God as harsh and stern, out to get us, 
But the truth is, God entered into our human suffering, into our human problem, into our human loneliness, into our human misery, and loved us so much that in the greatest act of love displayed, died the death we deserve for our rebellion. So may we hear, when we consider this warning passage, though it's strong, though it's forceful, may we hear it, pray we hear it, as words spoken out of the mouth of an eternal Father who loves you, who's given you His Son, who's given you the promises of His Word, that we might know Him. Pray that's how we hear this warning. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you for who you are, that you have not left us alone to figure things out, but that you have provided a way out of our temptation and sin, and that by the power of your word, as we've seen, and by the power of your spirit, you put us to life, your life. So Lord, I pray that we would be a people eager to hear from you, eager to, 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 be, to strive to know what you say and to respond in faith, even if it's hard and uncomfortable. I pray that we would get a glimpse of the goodness of what you are orchestrating as we put to death the things of our flesh and make much of you. Lord, I pray for those in this room who may question who you are or are considering Life with you, Jesus, I pray that you would put them to life, that they would see you as a a good God who has sacrificed his own life, that they may have life. Lord, I pray all this in your wonderful name. Amen.